Good morning. Got to pick slower songs before I preach. 164 beats a minute. That means when I'm doing this, the whole song for like three minutes. It's, it's tough. All right. You guys having a good week? How many of you found yourselves blessing your pizza last week? Anybody? Me? I blessed my pancakes on Wednesday morning. Um, I'm not sure how that divine intervention occurs, um, but, uh, but I did. I hope you've been uh, more aware of your prayer life this past week uh, in light of what we discussed last week. And yes, last week we did talk about the illumination of the Holy Spirit uh, as a fundamental and primary aspect of what Paul is going for here uh, at the end of chapter 1. Today, um, we're covering six verses. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, um, it is crazy. So here we go. <laughs> Uh, next week we'll begin in, in chapter 2. Uh, we're not trying to gloss over the end of this chapter. Um, th- there's tons you can say. There's tons you can say. Uh, as we read through this, you can stop at about every comma and, and, and have a sermon. Um, I mean, it's, it's easy here, just in having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, we can go after how this is a little bit different, but is in the same vein as last week in just the illumination of the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. We can talk an entire day about what the hope is for which we've been called, what the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints are, what the immeasurable greatness of his power is. Uh, and then you can go into consecutive sermons, again, at each comma as we start to talk about spiritual warfare, as we talk about the power and dominion of God, as we look at the entire Old Testament as it speaks to the, the dominion and the authority of God. I mean, there, there's tons here. So it's not for a lack of content that we uh, are accelerating through this. Uh, Matt gave me two weeks to close out the chapter, and I chose last week to just do the one verse uh, because of the doctrine of the of illumination, and specifically as it speaks to the Holy Spirit. I want to make sure that we really prop that aspect up as much as we can, um, considering that most of what we read in 1 through 14 uh, was primarily the uplifting of the Father and the Son, and of course that is the role of the Holy Spirit to uplift those two, but I want to make sure that we preached on it. And so this week, it is a lot of content, but again, 15 through 23 is really like a prayer of 1 through 14. So we, we split chapter 1 up into two sections. 1 through 14 is what we call the doxology or the, the praise that we look at 15 through 23, and we call that the prayer. And so this prayer is really taking everything that was that run-on sentence for 14 verses and trying to apply it to the Ephesians. Now, our challenge today is to try to tie all of chapter 1 together as we take seriously the first part of verse 18 and trying to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we can understand the prayer, the application, the daily business of applying verses 1 through 14 to our lives. That's quite a challenge um, if it were not for one thing, what we talked about last week. Right, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help illuminate this truth of God, this Holy Spirit, the Spirit that can search the depths and the riches and the character of God, just as our spirit can search the depths and the character and, you know, I guess, the riches of who we are, right? We need that Spirit that can search God in order for us to understand God, because only the Spirit of a man can understand that man. I can't understand the Spirit of anyone else here beyond what you tell me. I don't have your spirit. 
We, however, have the Spirit of God as we saw last week, and so we can know God. And we can know him, as we talked about, particularly at home gathering, rightly. We can know God rightly. So, with that, let's, uh, let's hop in and let's, uh, let's tackle the rest of this chapter. Um, let's start at verse 15 to try to give us a little bit more background context. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray today that you would indeed illuminate your word and your meaning for our hearts, Father, that we can understand you rightly. And Father, that we can take your word and apply it to our lives. Father, that your word would be a light into our path. And, Father, that we could see where we are going because of what you have illuminated for us. Father, we pray for soft hearts, that we would accept your word, and that we would not reject it. Father, we pray that you would soften the soil of our hearts, and, Father, that we would grow in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. The title of today's sermon is Enlightened Hearts. It's actually one of the pieces that I'm going to talk about, kind of the least, and what we have in our text. Uh, but I think it is fundamental to the, being the foundation for everything that is to come. In verse 18, we begin to see your first point today, the hope of God's call. The hope of God's call. Verse 18 starts saying, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now where is this coming from? Okay, In a series, we have to remember context that comes before. We had just got done hearing about you know, his his enthusiasm, his thanksgiving that he gives for having heard of the faith that these Ephesians are displaying, and particularly even then their love towards all the saints. But then he begins his actual prayer saying that he wants us to know God. That's the point, right? Coming out of our theme uh, for the whole book in verse 10, right, of everything being united in Christ, we see here how we are united in Christ. And that's through knowing God. It's the same way that we know our spouses better. We're united with our spouse and we know them. We learn more about them. We grow in depth of intimacy of relationship. The same is true between the church, as we're going to see specifically, and Jesus. And as we learn to know God better, we do that through the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation, particularly the Holy Spirit as it does its illuminating work in the hearts and minds of believers. Well, he, as we have talked about the past couple of weeks, we can't just skip over, like last week, particularly the title, The Father of Glory. Why does he use a redundant thing? Well, the same thing happens here. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is essentially the same thing that he just got done saying. But how is it a little bit different? Why does he say it? It has to have some specific reason. 
Well, for us, we have to kind of change our definitions a little bit. Right now, in our modern culture, we place the heart as really being the seat of the emotions and the seat of, like, the feelings, right? It's Valentine's Day. Every card has a heart on it, right? Why? Because that's where you feel, right? It hits you right in the feels. That's what we're talking about, right? In our modern culture, we think that the heart is the seat of the feelings and the emotions. But for the ancient cultures, particularly the Hebrews and Greeks, which is where we're getting this revelation from, they consider the heart, or cardia, to be the center of knowledge, understanding, thinking, and wisdom. The heart is where resides the seat of the mind and the will. And the New Testament believes and teaches that thoroughly. The heart, in fact, could be taught things that the brain could never know. Scripture appeals to the heart to understand, not the brain to understand. It calls the heart the mind. It calls the heart the will. And so, cardia, the heart, is the center of knowledge, understanding, thinking, and wisdom. So where would they, you ask, place the emotions and feelings? Where would those be? Well, they're associated with the intestines, the bowels, right? The Taco Bell. That's where your, yeah, that's where your emotions are. That's where your feelings are. Uh, the Greek word for that sounds incredibly German, splanchnon. Uh, that's a good word for the bowels, right? Splanchnon. I, I can't, I'm not going to spit it. Um, that's, that's where they would say that the emotions and feelings reside. And it's that gut feeling that we talk about, that instinct, Right? That's where you feel. You don't feel that in your heart. Your heart burns, right? That's not what we're talking about. Your heart burns because of what you know. Your stomach, your bowels burn <laughs> because of what you feel, right? So for us, we need to try to switch that understanding. For, you might have heard in our modern church culture the 18-inch gap. I'm talking about trying to get the things that we know in our head down to our heart so that we'll believe it, right? That 18-inch gap here. It's already here. That's where we need to talk about. And that's specifically what Paul's talking about here when he's talking about the eyes of your heart being enlightened. In fact, when we look at another letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, this was one of the major problems that they had. They were relying on feelings above knowledge. And many believers there were more interested in doing what felt right than in doing what God declared to be right. So instead of their emotions being controlled by God's truth, their emotions distorted their understanding of his truth. We have to be careful that our emotions don't stand in the way of God's truth because it doesn't only just stand in the way, but it distorts it. So Paul prays specifically here that the minds of the Ephesians be enlightened. Now listen, emotions do have a significant place and a significant place in the Christian life. I don't want to write them off wholeheartedly, but... They are reliable only as they are guided and controlled by God's truth. And that truth is what we come to know and understand through our minds. I was driving uh, to the office this morning and on, on my way back and um, on the radio, the Christian program, talking about how sometimes it just doesn't feel like God is near. And even though we know that he's near and he never leaves us, it just doesn't feel like it. So how do I make myself feel like God is near? Do you appeal to more feelings? Do you try to appeal to more emotions? You do what I used to do and try to listen to all of my sappy Christian music of God be near. Okay, that one, right? That doesn't help. That doesn't help. It just makes me more sad and realize the distance between me and him. What I need is to do what I know. 
You see, in the moment, my emotions and my feelings are going to distort what I know. Speaking back to my story from last week when we were in the hospital two weeks ago now with, with Adeline, and she had swallowed those pills. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to last week or talk to me after. She swallowed some pills, and we're in the hospital waiting to see if anything's going to happen to her. It's a 12-hour wait, and it was not fun. And trying to work through those helplessness feelings that I was talking about last week as a husband and as a father um, was difficult. Now, when I was driving to go get our stuff and when I was waiting there and even observing what's going on, I didn't feel like God was near. I felt like he was right there. And my feelings didn't matter because I knew that he was right there. In fact, my prayer was this, God, help me repent of and confess my feelings. My feelings of being inadequate. That's okay. I should be inadequate. I am inadequate. My feelings of, oh, I should have been watching her more. My feelings of, oh, I, I should have spent more time with my daughter. What if I lose her? All these feelings don't have any place in what's going on. Yes, they happen and they're real. And they help me sort out sin. They don't help me justify what's going on. Because what helps me sort out sin is the knowledge that I have of God and his word. And so in the moment when I have feelings, and yes, I can't help the feelings that I have, but I don't have to act on them. And I don't have to let them distort what I know to be true. Now the danger is if we don't know what is true, if we don't have the eyes of our heart enlightened, then we're not going to be able to help with that distortion. There are times in my life when I do act on my feelings, whether it be anger, whether it be impatience, all these other feelings that, yes, I have. In fact, it could even be your fault that I have this feeling, but that doesn't allow me to act on it if it's not right. And see, our feelings and emotions have great, great place in the Christian life, but they are not designed to be leading for us. Our hearts, our minds, our understanding and knowledge of God's Word is what is supposed to lead us. Now, what's nice about that is if we're being led by our hearts and our understanding, joy is what comes with that. And so that joy, that emotion, that feeling is what comes with that. And so we have to be careful, again, that our emotions do not dictate what we do, but they help assist in what we know. So Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. He doesn't care necessarily what we feel. Because what we know will help lead to what we should feel. And so he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. So this is specifically talking about, again, the illumination of the Spirit as we grow in knowing him, the eyes of our hearts, our knowledge, our mind, that that understanding would happen in our hearts. And he prays specifically that we would know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, what's the danger here? He's praying for a hope. How would you probably categorize hope? Would you categorize hope as an understanding or as a feeling, an emotion? I think we tend to put hope in the category of feeling and emotion. What's the danger with that? Our hope is only as strong as our emotions. And our hope may not last. So, what's the proper way to do this? Our hope should be an understanding. And so he's saying that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened that we may know, not feel, know what is the hope. So he's placing firmly this idea of hope in the heart. And the heart is where we know things. So you're asking, how can I know hope? If, 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 it seems like every time I experience hope, 
I, I hope that the Buckeyes will repeat as national champions. I, I hope that I will again have another child someday. I hope that all these things are like feelings and emotions, right? How do I take hope and place it into no? Well, the New Testament teaches us how to do that. In fact, Paul gives us many different aspects in how to know that. And he places it specifically on the call. The knowing the hope is based on what God has called you to. So as we break down this phrase, we say that we can know, it can be in the heart of understanding, our hope can be placed there. How? Because it's cemented and foundationally put upon our call. Now he's already given lots of explanation of the call, as we saw in the first several verses of chapter 1. But to kind of explore a little bit more for us that have uh, kind of been camping in Ephesians, we want to see that this call is taught throughout the New Testament. In fact, the call is not random or purposeless. He calls us to something, and he calls us for something. It is the expectation that we enjoy as a result of the fact that God has called you. What this rich and varied expectation is, the rest of the New Testament will tell us. And so the hope to which we've been called is this expectation. Hey, you're familiar with the idea. Christmas, right? What are you hoping for? Man, it probably has a power button, right? <laughs> There's an expectation, and you're pretty excited about it, right? And that's part of the fun of Christmas, right? The expectation that comes with it. Well, the same idea is true here. We have something. Instead of Christmas, it's the call. Believer, you have been called. And so what that is, we're going to explore, but the hope is this expectation. This, what we're getting to wait for, what we know is coming, and what is. I want to say from the beginning here that each of these three things that we're going to explore today in your notes points to a different part of our Christian life. We talked about last week that knowing God is the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life, right? Now we're going to talk about the specific components of the beginning, middle, and end. The beginning is the call. The hope of God's call points to the beginning of a Christian's life. You see, some things that God has called us to, I, uh, my spiritual gift that we're doing here in a couple weeks is teaching, which means I like lists. So here's a list. Ready? What are some things that the New Testament tells us that he has called us to? The first thing is that he's called us to belong to Jesus Christ and into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verse 6, we see that we belong to Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, we see that we're called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Why? To be saints, Romans 1, 7. Or as 1 Corinthians 1, 2 would say, he has called us with a holy calling, since he who has called us is holy himself. And he says to us, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's called us to be saints. And guys, that doesn't just mean he's called you to be saved. Every believer that is saved, every person that is called by God is not just called to be saved, they're called to be holy. Why? Because he's, Romans 8, 29, wanting to conform us to the image of his son. Because he is holy, we must be holy. Now, right now we're not, we strive to be, and one day though, we will be. So being holy or conforming being conformed to the image of a son or pursuing holiness is ultimately going to lead us to another call, to be liberated from the judgment of God's law. 
So we're not called to lapse into slavery again, specifically of judgment of God's law. We are instead called to freedom. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and 13. Liberation from the judgment of God's law is a major part of the call or the hope that we can have. You can hope over the fact that you will not experience the wrath of God. That's pretty good. I would throw that up there in the top. Yeah, okay. Well, what else? Being called to freedom and away from this judgment leads to harmonious fellowship across the barriers of race and class. For we were called in the one body, Colossians 3.15, to enjoy the peace of Christ, that we'll see later in Ephesians chapter 4. And we must live a life that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called for bearing one another in love. You want to solve the race problems that we have in America? We talked about this several weeks ago. The only way is to be united in Christ. Christians were to help display that by being fellow, having fellowship across the barriers of race. And then even for us, we need to talk about class. New Testament repeatedly condemns church people and church leaders that give preference to those that have more means over those that do not. We see that the Pharisees fell into that same category. And then we also see that he's called us to unjust suffering and patient endurance. Christian, you've been called to suffer. And you've been called to endure it patiently. Why? You've been called according to Christ who suffered also for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps in 1 Peter chapter 2.21. The example of Christ on the cross is for us. This is the second time that we see, just in a few short weeks in Ephesians, and then even in the Old Testament class, that the Old Testament and the things that happen in the Bible are examples for us. We see in 1 Corinthians that everything that happened to the Israelites was an example for us. We see here in 1 Peter 2 that the example of Christ on the cross was for us. Why? He suffered for us and we will suffer also. But what does that lead to? Ultimately, we've been called into his own kingdom and his own glory. We've been called into his own kingdom and glory. We've been called to his eternal glory in Christ. And this is what Paul calls the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, for the sake of which he presses on in the Christian race towards the goal. Why do we endure suffering, even when it's unjust? Why are we patient in our afflictions? Why do we continue to do what God has called us? Because of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul says that he presses on in the Christian race towards the goal. In fact, he doesn't just press on in order to, to finish it. He runs the race in such a way to win the prize. How does that take our suffering? How does that take our emotions and feelings of God being away from us and instead turn that to what we know? We know that we will be part of his own kingdom. We know that we will experience and be his glory. That should help us run the race to win All this was in God's mind when he called us. All of this was in God's mind when he called you. Believer, if you are faithful in Christ Jesus, if you have love towards the saints, this is what he called you to. 
Christ and holiness, freedom and peace, suffering and glory. And it's a new life. It's a completely new life together that we get to experience in this fellowship together where we know, where we love, where we obey, and where we serve Christ, where we enjoy fellowship with him and, and even with each other. And we look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. If you want hope, it's not going to come from feelings. It's going to come from knowing that you are destined for glory. This is the hope to which he's called you. And Paul prays that our eyes may be opened to know it. You see, until we comprehend who we truly are in Christ, until we understand our position in Christ as a co-heir with Jesus, as a son of God, it is impossible to live an obedient and fulfilling life. Now, just to be clear on the emotions and feelings, I'm not saying that the feelings that you experience are illegitimate or that they're not okay to have them. But I'm saying that we have to master them. They are not our master. I understand and I've worked with youth that have been in serious depression. I had a young lady in my ministry who committed suicide. I know that feelings are real. And I know that they're hard to get away from. But I know the remedy that God gives us. And that's to know the hope to which you've been called. And if you're still struggling with that today, I want to encourage you to, first of all, talk to someone. Talk to, talk to someone, anyone. It doesn't have to be me. Talk to someone. But I, I hope that you can explore together with that person if you really are called. Are you a son of God? Are you a co-heir with Christ? Are you a believer who's faithful in Christ Jesus? Because he's the answer. He's the answer. So, believers, again, th this entire chapter is for those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And believers, only when we understand how our lives are anchored in eternity, both past and future. Right, so I, I said the hope of God's call, we saw in 1 through 14, and I, I'm trying not to belabor that, that we were called in eternity past. That's the beginning of the believer's journey as a Christian. But our lives are anchored in eternity past and in eternity future when we look to this glory that is coming. And only when we understand how it's anchored in Christ. When something's anchored, it's stuck. It's there. It's done. Believer, your life is anchored in Christ. And it's only then can you have the right perspective and motivation for living in time, the problem that we typically have with our emotions, our feelings, our splanknon, is that it's not rooted in eternity. When my heart, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. When my bowels <laughs> get in a bind, it's because I'm living in the moment. What allows me to gain uh, control over those is to step back and gain perspective. On how does this single day, how does this single hour fit within eternity, past and present? Does this one event really shake the anchor that I have in my call? Does this in any way change or rattle the cage of what is waiting for me in glory to come? When we are anchored in eternity, both past and future, that is when we can have the right perspective and motivation for living in time. And so Christian, do you have hope? Do you have hope? 
did you sing today, exalted one, the one that is high and lifted up that we're getting ready to talk about in a few verses, did you sing that with hope? Do you fix your eyes, setting your gaze on him to be firmly rooted in looking at the king of glory with hope? Believer, do you have hope? Do you share the gospel with others as if you're holding out hope to people? When we share the gospel with people who do not believe in Jesus or who are still lost in their sins, it needs to be hope. It's not a theological system. It's not one of five major world religions. It's hope. It's hope. It is hope for a person who is dead and dying in their sins who does not have hope of a future glory. Instead, their hope is in future wrath poured out on their lives because of their sins. Believer, when you share the gospel, it has to be because of hope. If you're sharing it or not sharing it because it's not hope, then we need to examine our hearts and see if we really know that we have hope. Because God has called us to a distinct way of life with a glorious future hope. So let's jump to that future now. The glory of God's inheritance. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The glory of God's inheritance. So we talked um, in verses, what, uh, 11 and 14, I believe, about what the inheritance is. Whether it's God's inheritance or whether it's our inheritance. Uh, I told you that it can be taken really kind of as both. Um, we kind of settled on the idea of it being our inheritance, and that's where we're going to stay for this one. And so for us, and yet again, this can potentially, rightly, um, both can be true, even though one is what he meant. Um, this could be God's inheritance, us as God's inheritance, but I'm going to preach today as if it is our inheritance. So the hope of our calling points to the beginning, the glory of God's inheritance, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, points to the end. we we'll set some bookmarks up before we tackle this middle section. It points to the final inheritance of which the Holy Spirit is the guarantee and which Peter describes as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is kept in heaven for you in 1 Peter 1.4. So Matt uh, spoke a couple weeks ago about the Holy Spirit being the guarantee. We saw earlier in uh, verse 3, uh, many weeks ago, that the Holy Spirit plays the part of being the guarantor of our salvation. And so this points to the end where the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing this. This is what we are sealed for. This is what we are sealed to. This idea of an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. You see, God's children are God's heirs. And in fact, they are fellow heirs with Christ in Romans chapter 8. And one day, by His grace... This inheritance will be ours. What's the inheritance? It's the manifold blessings of God. And we talked about that already. To hone in on something specifically, it's the glory of God. We talked about that at the end of uh, 11 and 12. We shall see God. 
and his Christ, and we will worship him. You see, it's not just that we will see. First of all, you can't skip over that, and I'm going to come back to it. But we will be transformed in this vision. When we see him, we will be transformed. Because when he appears, we shall be like him. That should blow your mind. We will be like him in body and in character. We will be transformed in this vision because when he appears, we will be like him in his body and in his character. We will be made holy as he is holy. And we will see him as he is. To me, that, that's what I hang my hat on. When I'm having difficulty, when I want to think about heaven, when I'm stuck with these emotions and feelings that I can't reconcile, what helps me gain perspective is that I will see God. I will see him. I, I can't explain what that does to me. I, I can't put it in words. I can't point to a song. I can't. I just can't. But my life changes when I hear the truth that I will see God. Anytime I hear it preached on, I cry. When you talk about emotions, I'm an emotional dude. I get that from my mom. So thank you. That's why I wear Batman. It makes me feel better. I'm an emotional guy. I, I cry when I hear that. Man, it rocks my world every time when I know that I will see God. So we will be like him because we will see him. We will enjoy perfect fellowship with one another. Perfect fellowship. And right now we're to love each other, as we saw earlier in uh, verse 15 and in 16. I hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. We're to love each other with our warts and all. There are things about each one of us that are annoying. But we have good fellowship together. And one day, that annoying thing will be removed. It will be perfect fellowship with each other. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And again, at the end, we will be among a multitude which no man can number. That fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is going to happen. In heaven, there will be people that have been redeemed by God that are without number as the sand on the seashores and the stars in the sky. Innumerable saints in which we have perfect fellowship with one another. It will be the only family reunion that you are happy to have the t-shirt for. You're going to show up and we're going to have perfect fellowship. You don't have to stay away from Uncle Leo. You don't have to run away from your grandma who's just going to get lipstick all over your new spiritual body. You can enjoy it. And it will be perfect, perfect fellowship. It seems presumptuous that we should think about or even anticipate it. I mean, when we talk about it being an inheritance, inheritance, as we talked about several weeks ago, only happens when someone dies and leaves the inheritance, right? Well, in this unique case, the death has already happened. The death of Christ has already happened. The inheritance has been won. We, on the contrary of being presumptuous, we can know that Paul prays that we can know it. And not just know it, but the glory of it. Indeed, the riches of the glory of it. And how magnificent it is that we can think and dwell and be happy and thankful for and look forward to this inheritance now. It's kind of dark and macabre to think of, you know, 
well, when that relative dies, I can finally pay off my house. That's not good, right? That's not the inheritance we're talking about. This one we can look forward to. This one we can grab a hold of. This one we even have now. It has already been given to us and it is also being held for us. He has gone to prepare a place for us. This glory, this riches of the glory of this inheritance is waiting for us and we can know it now. He prays that we would know the glory of it now. How are you exploring, believer? How are you knowing the riches of this inheritance that's waiting for you? Do you look forward to seeing God as he is? Do you look forward to the fact that one day we will be free from sin and its effects? That we'll not just have the power to overcome it and defeat it as we have now, but we will be immune to it because we will be holy. Death will be done. Sin is gone. You look forward to perfect fellowship with one another, to being among a multitude of saints that no one can number and worshiping our God. We can know now the riches of the glorious inheritance that we have. And finally, we see him pray for the greatness of God's power. Verse 19, he goes on to say, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the greatness of God's power specifically points to the interim time. So we've talked about the two bookends, the beginning and the end. We want to talk about now. Now, don't forget, the beginning and the end have been prayed for that we would know them now. Right? That's the anchoring in the past of his call and the anchoring in the future glory. Right? But we have both of those things now. We were called and we understand that we are believers now because of his work in our life and his eternally past work in our lives. So there's anchoring there and there's expectation of the call now to be holy, to know Christ, to have freedom and peace, to know that suffering brings glory and obedience. So that's for then and for now. And the glory is coming, but we also can know it now. But what fills, really, this middle section? What fills it is the greatness of God's power. You see, in fact, this even receives the bulk of the apostles' concentration. Verses 19 through 23 really wrap all of this power together into one big package. And why does he spend so much concentration on the power? Well, because the power of God is the only thing that can fulfill the expectation that belongs to the call, And the only thing that can bring us safely to the riches of the glory of the final inheritance. The only thing that can keep that expectation of the call alive is the power of God. The only thing that can bring us to glory is the power of God. And so the power, as we see even last week, is foundational to this request. 
And so Paul's convinced that God's power is sufficient. And he prays this, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked? A lot of activity happening right there, right? Literally, if you want to just translate all the words into a very concise thing, it's this. The energy of the might of his strength. It's super redundant, right? The energy of the might of his strength. Why doesn't he just say strength? Because it's the might of his strength. Why doesn't he just say that? Because it's the energy of the might of his strength. I don't know what you think of when you hear those words, but for me, um, going back to the time that I was doing powerlifting, that's kind of what came to mind. You see someone who's got an incredible load on the bar, and they don't just pick it up and clean it, right? That would be strength. The might of his strength might be a little grunt while he's doing it, right? But the, the energy of the might of his strength is the explosive maneuver that he rips it off the floor, throws it in the air, and catches it on his chest. That's the energy of the might of his strength. It's the same thing with God. God spoke the world into existence. That's strength. What in the world then is the energy of the might of his strength if he can speak something into existence? How explosive is that? You think about this, uh, you can translate these words into their energy, might is dynamo, like dynamite. The idea that this is explosive, it is broad, it is unstoppable. He's praying that we can know the greatness of that. I can't fathom speaking a word and creating something. God spoke the stars into existence. I can't fathom that. How am I going to fathom the energy of the might of his strength? He gave us a display. It's not the stars that we should look to. The energy of the might of his strength was given in a public demonstration in the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That I can kind of know. He doesn't leave it there when he just says that we can know the energy of the might of his strength. He says that he worked. The example that he gave in Christ, just like everything else was, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He raised him from the dead. He made him sit at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all competition and all competitors. And he's put all things under his feet, and he's made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body. You know, you think, if there are two powers which man cannot control, but which still hold him in bondage, there are death and evil. Man's mortal, you cannot avoid death. It was appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Every one of us will die. There's nothing you can do to stop it. In our wisdom, in our perspective, there are things you can do to extend your stay on this planet, but one day it will nevertheless come to an end. And man has fallen. You cannot overcome evil. This is what it means to be dead and your or our trespasses. You cannot overcome evil because you are dead. 
dead men can't do anything. They not only tell no tales, they also don't work, they don't eat, they don't drive a car. Dead men don't do anything. We were dead in our trespasses, in our sins. But God, in Christ, has conquered both. He's conquered both. Not just one, but both. And therefore, he can rescue us from both. Let's look at these pieces. Let's look at Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. Death is a bitter and it is a relentless enemy, and we can't escape it. No human power can prevent this, let alone bring a person back to life. Jesus did it himself multiple times. The best known one is Lazarus, right? And with Lazarus, he came out probably kind of stinky. It's been a little while he's been in the grave. But with Jesus, God arrested decay. The Holy One saw no corruption to his flesh. He brought life back. And then he transcended it altogether with a different life. He gave him an immortal life. He is glorious life and a free life. Believers, you have an immortal life, not a mortal death. You have a glorious life coming, not a life in punishment and under wrath, and a free life. You'll be holy and free from sin. You will not be stuck dead in your sin, in your sin experiencing it for the rest of time. So what does this do? Yes, it's awesome, and praise God that he can rescue us from those things, but, but what does that do for us? What, what do we take that and, and kind of place it into our lives? If this is really God's power for the interim, that really seems like it's kind of the, the whole plan, right? The whole plan was for Christ to die, for him to be raised from the dead, and for him to be exalted into the heavenlies. And so how does that affect us here now? Because it gives our life meaning. It, it gives our life meaning. Our labor is not in vain. Christian, press on. Work hard for the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, it says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always excelling in the Lord's work. Knowing that your labor... And the Lord is not in vain. There's enough in that one verse for like 80 days of devotions. You can rest in that for a long time. Be steadfast. Believer, how are you being steadfast? Are you doing it on your own? Are you resting in the power of the Holy Spirit to be steadfast? To stand when no one else is. What does that look like for things going on in the culture? What does that mean for you? When we talk about Planned Parenthood right now. What does that mean for you when we talk about the alterations to marriage? What does that mean for you at your job? Do you cut corners? Husbands, fathers, what does that mean for your families? 
with your kids? What does that mean in your family worship? What does that mean in your own personal Bible study? Are you steadfast? The resurrection gives meaning to our lives, and so we need to be steadfast. The fact that we are capable, and believer, you have been rescued from death, and you will be rescued from sin, and you have power to overcome sin now. How does that allow you to be steadfast, immovable? How are you immovable, dear brother and sister? How are you always excelling in the Lord's work? This hope to which he's called you to. This hope, this expectation of knowing Christ and having fellowship with him. How are you excelling in those two things? Are you excelling in knowing God? We have no excuse not to excel. It's God who's at work in our lives, to will and to work. It's the Holy Spirit in us that is driving us to these things. Is your splanchnon getting in the way? Is it distorting the truth? Or do you know the things of God with excellence? Are you serving each other with excellence? Do you cut corners and set up? Are you casual in your attendance to home gatherings? How are you treating each other with excellence? How are you outdoing one another in honor? How are you treating other people in the way that you want to be treated? How are you doing all things as if they are for the Lord and not for men? We have to work in excellence. Why? Because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Yes, we will one day give an account in this judgment that we talk about for the things that we have done. But it's more than that. It's more than just being accountable and being held guilty or being praised for it. It's the fact that our life is for God. Most of the time in my life and in the people that I talk with, the judgment is all about making sure that we please God, making sure that we don't get in trouble, and saying at the end of the day, Jesus, right? It's more than that. It's more than judgment. It's more than a decree on our life. It is the fact that everything that we do is for the Lord. It's for God. Parents, you know how you feel when your kid just does it to be obedient so that they don't get in trouble versus when they do it because they love you. There's a huge difference, right? Maybe, if you've experienced the, the latter. <laughs> when your kid does what they're supposed to out of joyful obedience, it's completely different. That's the point of it, right? It's not just to get the clothes off the floor. The same is true for us. I'm preaching Ephesians, not 1 Corinthians. The resurrection gives believers enormous hope and sufficient power for living a life of service to God. So get busy. Get busy. It's not in vain. Know that when it's hard and that when you're suffering, it is not in vain. Know that when no one else sees it, it is not in vain. Know that when you're tired, it is not in vain. Our labor has value because of what God has done. That's the resurrection. Let's talk about the enthronement over evil. 
You see, Jesus is not simply just alive forevermore. It wasn't just that he was brought back from the dead, but the fact that he is also reigning forevermore. God promoted him to the place of supreme honor and executive authority. This is in fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus claims this verse as being about him in front of the Sanhedrin. Pretty audacious. But in fact, God does it. You see, this enthronement over evil, what is it speaking about? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's him having supreme position and executive authority. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is supreme authority in eternity past and eternity future. He's tied to the executive authority of God. We hear this again in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's so that we get the great commission from the executive authority of God. But there's an and, because this is Paul and his run-on sentences. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head to the things of, of the church. So, he is ex- supreme position and honor. He is supreme executive authority. But this idea of putting the enemies as the footstool, he puts everything under his feet. What are these? Well, these enemies that are put under his feet as his footstool <coughs> are the same enemies that we're called to fight against in chapter 6. We won't be there for another two and a half years. But in chapter 6, we get to see this idea of the armor of God. You're familiar with that? We are to fight against, resist the devil. We are to not just hunker away. We are to resist. We are to fight. The only temptation that you are not supposed to fight and that you are supposed to instead flee is sexual temptation. Flee from it. You're not going to win. Don't fight. We're not to fight that sin. We're to flee from it. Fight against everything else. These enemies that we're going to see in chapter 6 are the ones that we have to fight against. And why do we have to fight against them if God wins? Because they've not yet conceded Christ's victory. They're fighting tooth and nail to overcome this victory that Christ has ensured. And so be alert against the enemy. Stand watch. Christians, we have got to stop being surprised. We've got to stop being surprised and and dismayed at resistance. If you proclaim a truth of God's word, someone will come against it. Don't be surprised. It's going to come on Facebook. It'll come on Twitter. It'll come on Instagram. It'll come in the office. It'll come at home. Do not be surprised. You have an enemy who is trying to resist you, so stop being surprised. When you're faithful in your parenting, don't be surprised when you encounter opposition. When you're faithful in your marriage, don't be surprised when you encounter opposition. People come to me all the time and like, man, this thing's happening, and I just, I'm getting so discouraged. The thing that's happening in your life is affirmation of the fact that you're doing what you're supposed to do. 
When you are faithful and obedient to Christ and His Word, and you encounter opposition, that is Satan affirming the fact that you're doing the thing you're supposed to do. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. We have to understand that the evil one and his host hate us. They hate you. They hate you. They hate our faith. They hate the church. They hate our marriages. And they hate our mission. That's why we must lean into Christ and pray for his resurrection power to strengthen us and to empower us to live for God's glory. But we don't have to fear them. They may hate us, but we don't have to fear them because we have superior power. The power of the risen Christ is ours to do battle against worry, against temptation, against doubt, against all of this demonic warfare. So why, why do we often fail to rely on this mighty power? Well, I think two things back to last week. We have an exalted view of self. And we talked about it specifically last week in relation to how we approach the word. We have an exalted view of ourselves. We think that we can overcome this opposition on our own. Or just like last week, it could be because of a diminished view of God. I knew this week, I think, specifically, is I think there's a failure to understand the spiritual battle in which we are engaged. Okay, I'm not one to point to everything and say Satan, 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 Satan. First of all, Satan is not omnipresent. He is only at one place at any time. God is everywhere. Satan is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. The only power he has is what God grants him. He's not omniscient. Guess what? Satan doesn't know what you're thinking. Only God does. Now here's the danger. Satan's not stupid. I think he might know what I'm thinking because I say too much, because I live in patterns, and he's a smart adversary. But his weapons have not changed. They have not changed. The same things that tripped believers up 4,000 years ago are the same things that tripped me up. And I have the Holy Spirit. But if I live my life failing to understand that I'm in a spiritual battle every day, then I will fall or I will be ineffective. So we rely on the power of God. And we don't have to fear because we have superior power. He may hate us. He may hate our faith. He may hate the church, our marriages, our mission. But we have superior power. We've already won. But we have to fight now. And so, exercise dominion. In fact, this idea of Christ being placed supremely and having executive authority is the fulfillment and the perfect picture of the dominion that man was supposed to play and display even and exercise. The dominion that God gave us over the garden, over creatures, over everything was to be a display of authority and of subjection to authority. But Christ is going to fulfill that when he is placed in a place of supreme position and executive authority. So Christ is enthroned over evil, and we can resist it in the power of that resurrection. Finally, Jesus is headship of the church. Paul's still not done. He goes on now to relate this meaning of this double triumph, this triumph over death and this triumph over evil for the church. 
So if this is in the interim, how does it relate to the church? Well, he is given headship of the church. The church is his body. And so he directs it. And the church is his fullness. He fills it. Now, there are multiple ways, again, to understand this filling of all in all. And what exactly that means, there are particularly three distinct ways of understanding it. I pretty much wholly disagree with the first one. Uh, the second one I kind of see beauty in, but I don't think it's the most accurate. The third one is what I'm going to talk about. This idea of Christ's headship of the church. If you look at the text, it says, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Verse 22. And verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So is the church the fullness that fills Christ? Or is Christ the fullness that fills the church? Both are not wrong. One, I think, is a, not as right. So, again, we have to make a decision, and this, this is why I'm going to preach. Only the church. Only the church. Not all of creation is said to be his body, right? He's the head of the church. The church is his body. Not everything that is, right? Universalism doesn't work here. So consequently, the church should be important to us. Jesus identifies himself with it. Not only is he in love with it, as it is his bride, and he, the bridegroom, but it's his body. And if he identifies, if Jesus Christ, the one who, that we've been talking about, is our inheritance, is the power over death and sin, if he's identifying with something that should be important to us, right? I mean, he's like he's God or anything. The church should be important to us. Jesus identifies with it. Jesus is the head. He's the boss. You can look at my Hawaiian Bible that I just got uh, two days ago, um, the Jesus book, and uh, you can see that he is indeed the boss. Jesus is the head, not you, not an elder, not even the lead elder, and not your child. Jesus is the only head. We submit to him. A good question to ask when saying, who do I view as the head of the church? Who do I view as head of Renovation Church? Um, would you leave this place if Matt or myself left? We're not planning on it. Calm down. I like my office. Would you leave if one of us left? We need to remember that we're devoted first to each other and to the head only. That's it. We're devoted to the head and we're devoted to each other. You should be more devoted to your fellowship among you than you are to either Matt or myself. You can enjoy us. I hope you do. I, I try to do my best here so that you enjoy it. But you should be devoted to each other. That's what covenant community is. It's not covenant community to the elder, to the lead elder. It's covenant community amongst each other to God. And we join you in that as we say we are members first and elders second. We are devoted to you as members of the body of Christ, with Christ as our head. He is the chief shepherd. He is the vine. We're just branches. So how do we understand this fullness? The church is Christ's fullness. Um, I actually, for once, uh, disagree with Calvin on the major part of this, but um, I can see some sweet resonance in his view uh, and, and uh, another guy named Hendrickson this passage is intentionally confusing 
Why? Why would Paul put something? There's a much easier way either side of the, of the playing field that he can resolve this for us. But he chooses not to. Why? Well, Paul, ever the apologist, um, likes to be smart, right? So Peter himself says, that guy Paul writes some things that are kind of hard to understand. This is one of them. Why? Well, because Paul um, wants to close this section with uh, a fourfold alliteration. Alliteration is a classic Baptist thing that we do where everything starts with P or C or whatever, right? The calling, uh, the command, the right, and then you close with a poem, right? That's, that's how we do it. Um, Paul's doing the same thing here. It's actually really pretty. I'm going to try to say it, even though this biblical Greek is not really a spoken language. It says, to pleroma, tau ta panta, and pasin pleromino. Pa, 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 right? That's pretty. Alliteration is a, is a big deal for the Greeks at this time. Um, they are coming from pagan worship into Christian living. And to close in this way is, is beautiful at the end of a prayer. And he opts for this instead of giving us the, well, rather um, unsightly, uh, straight version, either way. So what would I say this means? What is the fullness? Do we fill Christ or does Christ fill the church? I'm going to say we do not fill Christ. He fills us. Why? Because God himself, the, even, the Trinity, uh, we, we claim the aseity of Christ. It's the self-existence of Christ. Uh, the character of God is wrapped up into multiple different aspects that we've talked about. One is aseity, the fact that God is self-sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing to exist. Nothing can be added to him. He's immutable. And nothing can be taken away from him. All right, so... For us to fill Christ can't happen. There's no filling to be done. He's already full, right? So I don't think it can be that one. Um, Paul is, I think, saying that Jesus, as head over the church, is filling the church in a special way with his spirit, grace, and gifts. It's his fullness. So I, I think of it this way. The body that we are as the church being like a container and the head filling that that's the fullness. We experience the fullness of Christ as he leads and directs the church. And then he also fills it. Now, what's important about this, you say, well, of course, Christ fills us with the Holy Spirit. He fill, I, I get that. Why is this significant? Well, because God is Lord over all things, right? All of creation. He's Lord over everything. And he fills all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So how is this different? What's so special about the church being filled, being the fullness of him? This filling of the church is different. You see, only the church is his body. And he rules it and he fills it in a special way. And what this means for us, church, is that we are entirely dependent on Christ. He fills the church with his presence as he filled the temple with smoke in the Old Testament. His presence is manifest among us in each other. Now, that, that's what I believe the text is saying. That, that's, that's where I would encourage you uh, along is to view us as a container that Christ fills uniquely. But on the opposing view, uh, you'll see some of what it means here for us to be the fullness of God. I think you can take this still, and um, there's great beauty in these next two quotes I'm getting ready to read that I actually want to leave us with. Um, so know from the beginning here that we can't add to Christ, okay? 
He's already completely full. We cannot add to God. He's already completely full. We cannot add to the Holy Spirit. He's already completely full. They are unique in their relationship to each other. Nothing can be given or taken away. And they are completely self-sufficient. They don't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything from us. Instead, he gives us everything. That's the text. There's great beauty here, I think, when we look at the relationship that Calvin and Hendrickson display. So knowing, for instance, there's an example of a father in a house with a child. The father's still the father. He's still complete with or without the child, right? But there's some splanknon going on that we're going to talk about right here, okay? So listen to this quote by Calvin. As we look at the this as we look at the relationship that Jesus does place such a huge importance on with the church. Listen to this. It says, By this word fullness, he means that our Lord Jesus Christ and even God his Father account themselves imperfect unless we are joined to him. He's perfect. But listen to the word. This is how I want you to take it. They count themselves imperfect. In other words, they view them, they're viewing themselves as if there's something missing. There's not. He's completely good and good to go, all right? I'm over-caveating this. He views himself, he accounts himself as imperfect unless we are joined to him. This is the relationship that I want you to, to, to soak in. As if a father should say, my house seems empty to me when I do not see my child in it. As a husband will say, I seem to only be half a man when my wife is not with me. After the same manner, God says that he does not consider himself full and perfect except by gathering us to himself and by making us all one with himself. God's, God is a, is a complete husband. He's not lacking anything. He's a complete father. He's not lacking anything. I'm a complete father. I'm a complete husband. I'm not lacking anything in the role. I can certainly do better, but in the role, I'm 100% husband. I'm married. I'm 100% father. I have a child. I don't feel complete unless I have my wife, unless I have my children. Will you see the relationship? It's not a nature and an essence thing. It's a relationship thing. Hendrickson says this, As bridegroom, he is incomplete without the bride. As vine, he cannot be thought of without the branches. As shepherd, he is not seen without his sheep. And so also as head, he finds his full expression in his body, the church. Church, you have a unique position in history. We are co-heirs with Jesus. I think that's where this points to, this relationship idea. He, he's certainly, certainly self-sufficient. He's certainly complete and perfect. But we're co-heirs with him. And because we've been granted the privilege of being co-heirs with Christ, because we've been granted the privilege of being sons of God, we are brought into that to be part of his fullness. To be part of his fullness. So as we go into chapter 2, I want to encourage you to keep chapter 1 and just tucked away right here. The church, you were predestined. You were elected. You were called. You were saved. You were sealed. You are dead to yourself. You are alive to God. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit for a promised inheritance that you will one day have in all of its glory that you can know today in its manifold riches. You've seen the beginning of your faith and being called. You are anchored in eternity past. You can look forward to the day that you will see him as he is. You are anchored in the future. 
And you can live in power today as you live inside the power that brought Jesus back from the grave over evil and seats him at the right hand of God the Father. That's the hope that you have. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, you do not have these things. But you can. You can. And realize that we, apart from God, are dead in our sins and nothing but eternal destruction and death waits for us. Were it not for the work of God on the cross and Jesus Christ, we would be all lost. If you want this hope, if you want this eternal inheritance, if you want this glory of being able to see him as he is one day, confess your sins, repent of them, and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Believers, get busy. Your labor is not in vain. Live in hope. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Father, your revelation is just magnificent. Father, I know that you had to accommodate so much for us to be able to understand a glimpse of you in our language. Father, you are so gracious in what you have done. Father, you are so merciful and forgiving us of sin, of of an infinite offense against you. Father, we can rest in knowing you. We can have hope in the call of which you have called us to. And Father, that we can look one day to the glorious riches that await us in your Son in a place that you are keeping for us, undefiled, uncorruptible, living in an eternity with you. Father, we thank you and we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.